Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, The Mamas and the Papas, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in December 2015. In our first story, Ben Whiting tells of how his father helped him to get his budding magic career off the ground, including developing some photos that nearly got him into some trouble. At the age of 11, if you looked around my room, there was really only one thing to tip you, that would tip you off that I was a little different. Um, if you looked up at my ceiling, you would see the glow-in-the-dark stars that we all stuck on there with the silly putty that didn't work. If you looked on my floor, you saw the same thing you see now, clothes. The, uh, if you looked afar, you would see a tube that came up to about my hip filled with pogs and a rolled-up uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue that we all pretend was not there. Um, but the one thing that was a little different... Uh, was my bed on the headboard, and there was actually two of them. On each side of my headboard, there was a pair of handcuffs. <laughs> because I was obsessed with Harry Houdini. I read about him incessantly. The more I read about him, the more I wanted to be like him. Uh, most of you know... Uh, He's known as a magician. He actually wasn't that good of a magician. Uh, he was an escape artist, and there was nothing that man or the mind could create. No shackles, no chains, no locks, no handcuffs, no ropes that he could not escape from. And the more I read about him, the more I wanted to be like him. So naturally, I started acquiring large amounts of rope and string and handcuffs. The, uh, and what a great metaphor, I mean, at the age of 11, to, like, cling to. The idea that no matter what restraints or shackles that society or the government or the sixth grade puts on us, that we can escape. And, and even if I really couldn't understand it with my brain, I understood it with my heart. What I did not understand was why my mom got so mad every time she saw those handcuffs on my bed. <laughs> and what made me even more mad is that she would never explain it to me at the age of 11. And these are the struggles of parents who are raising a budding magician. Uh, yes, and so one day I approached my dad and I was like, Dad, there is something I need. I absolutely need it. I need a straight jacket. How am I supposed to be an escape artist without an, a straight jacket? Did they tell Picasso no brush? No. Now, my dad thought he had one up on me here because he knew that it was illegal to own a straitjacket in the state of Georgia unless you were a certified doctor or certifiably insane. So, he said, Ben, if you can find someone that will sell you a straitjacket, I will buy it for you. So, I grabbed my yellow pages. I called all the hospital supply stores, no luck. I called all the hospitals, no luck. And then, on a whim, I tried all the mental health facilities in the Yellow Pages. And that's when I met Barbara. <laughs> to this day, I don't know if Barbara was a doctor or faculty or a patient, but 
I, with the cutest voice I could muster, I was like, Barbara, I'm going to be in a talent show, and I really hope that if I, I think if I can win and I can get out of the straitjacket, I will finally be able to make some friends. <laughs> Which was a total lie. There was no talent show. But... She said, you know what, Ben, I like you, and for $395, we will send you a straitjacket. And my dad, being a man of his word, had to buy the straitjacket. The, uh, and so I felt that I was well on my way to becoming the next Houdini. But everything changed when I got a phone call from Shelley. Our local, yeah, it's kind of funny. Our local librarian. She said, Ben, there is a new resident in 793.8, which is the Dewey Decimal Code for the magic section in the library. Yes, that is burned into my memory. And not only that, it was a new book on Houdini. <gasps> oh my God. Curiosity, excitement, passion, and my mother drove me to the library where I got this book, and no sooner was I into the introduction when I realized that I was completely wrong. The fault line of my understanding had cracked wide open because this person argued that what made Harry Houdini great was not the fact that he was a great magician. He wasn't. It was not the fact that he was a great escape artist. He was. It was the fact that Harry Houdini was the greatest publicist the world had ever seen. Aha. That's what I need. I mean, I had handcuffs. I had rope. I had a straitjacket. I should be at the top of the world right now. But now I had the final piece of the puzzle. Publicity. Because when you think about Houdini, we all know his name now. Because every time he did something incredible, people were there to talk about it. The press was there writing about it. Every time he escaped from something, there was someone there with a camera taking photographs, and that's why there are so many photographs of him still today, and that's why he is in our memories. So I went up to my dad. I said, Dad, I need you to tie me up. My dad looked at me and said, Again? <laughs> I said, But, Dad, this time it's different. This time, I need you to tie a cinder block to my feet. Why? So you can throw me in the pool, the deep end. Keep in mind, I assumed that this great publicity stunt would just turn me into the next Houdini the next day, not even thinking about maybe I should have an audience I didn't know, but another story, I digress. The, uh, so my dad said, no. What? I've come so far. I have the handcuffs, the ropes, the straitjacket, but you are denying me my publicity. How dare you call yourself a father if you won't even throw your own son in a straitjacket into the deep end of your pool? And I started to cry. And my dad, being the amazing person he was, said, Ben, I have an idea. Let's take some publicity photos, and we're going to put them in a press packet, and we're going to send them to the local newspapers, and then we're going to invite them over. You're going to do a show, and this really will work. And my mind cracked wide open. It was so exciting. I was going to have publicity photos to start my career. Now, if you're a member of my family, 
photos of an 11-year-old tied to a fence are absolutely normal. <laughs> but this was back in the day before digital cameras, before cell phones, when you had to take six more pictures than you actually wanted to on a camera, take the film out, tie it to an eagle, throw it at a wolf camera and video, where a soothsayer would take a red light and a magic wand and then call you in a few days if it worked. And that's what they did. They called my dad and said, your photos are ready, Mr. Whiting. He came in and they said, Mr. Whiting, we are so sorry. Child Services is here. Who immediately put my dad in handcuffs, sat him down, and said, we need you to answer some questions. And it was only at this moment that my dad realized he had taken an 11-year-old child and tied him to a And mind you, I'm adopted. My dad is whiter than a picket fence, and I look like this. And he brings these photographs, gets them developed, and the first thing that pops out of his mouth was, uh, 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 he asked me to do it. <laughs> so the conversation lasted a while. And long story short, it ended with them saying, Mr. Whiting, that story is so ridiculous. We believe you. <laughs> Buy a Polaroid. And my dad came home late that night with a look on his face that, oof, and he sat me down and he told me what had happened. And he said, Ben, I was in handcuffs today for your magic career. What do you have to say about that? And I looked him right in the eye and I said, Dad, I love you. But if it was me, I would have gotten out of those handcuffs in under a minute. <laughs> Next, there was some turmoil in Janelle Bauer's life while she was in labor with her second child, and that led to a very rough night. On January 10th, 2013, I sat down to get an ultrasound done for my second pregnancy. See, my midwife uh, thought that I might be having twins, which totally just fucking terrified me. Um, my marriage had been tenuous at best, so twins were just totally not in the plan. And as soon as that little wand thing landed on my belly, I said to the tech, is there only one in there? And she looked at me like a little taken aback and assured me that yes, yes, there was only one in there. And then asked if I wanted to know the sex of the baby. And I told her, I told her that I did. She said, you're having a girl. And then pointed to the little absence of tiny balls on the, on the screen in front of her. And I immediately cried um, out of joy of not having twins initially. And I was so happy to find out that I was having a girl. But then immediately three things came to my mind in a frightening succession. The first was, oh, my God, she is going to be so beautiful. The second is, if my daughter will be that beautiful, that must mean that I am that beautiful. And the third being that I have to divorce my husband. 
This was the first time that I had ever to myself actually thought the words, you are beautiful. But to see your own beauty and perfection reflected back through your children, your own beauty becomes this really inescapable reality. I decided that I needed to divorce my husband because I thought about how I would feel if my daughter, my perfect little beautiful daughter, was being treated by a man the way that I was. And I would have wanted to rip his little balls off and shove them down his throat, which is to say that it completely broke my heart. And I knew that I would be the guide to tell her what was acceptable, an acceptable way to be treated in a relationship. And I knew that my, my relationship to myself and my relationship to her father would offer the building blocks that she would need to grow into a young woman. So I walked out of that appointment holding my little keepsake ultrasound photos with my eyes full of tears. And for some reason, it's always just felt way more pathetic to be pregnant and crying. Like I just wanted to shout at all the other people around me. Yes, I'm that stereotype right now. Yes, I am. And I didn't know how or when, but I knew that my marriage would end. So when about three weeks later, my husband Clay came to me and told me that he wanted to explore his feelings for another woman, Amy, I didn't fight or protest. I simply said, I want you to do what you feel is appropriate for a married man with a toddler and a pregnant wife. And I knew what he would do. And even though it would be really easy for me to like play a victim in this role, I, I wasn't. I had seen that my marriage was failing for some time and, and neither of us knew how to fix it. And if I was completely truthful, I saw this as a way out. So he began dating her while being married with, to me. And I let it go on for about a month or so until I said I didn't want to be with someone who thought that this was acceptable. And we set, separated when I was seven and a half months pregnant. I was at risk for preterm labor and so I had to stop working. We had a toddler. So we decided to continue to live together until the baby was born. He continued to date Amy. I started to date somebody. It all felt kind of doable, like we could actually pull this thing off. In the early morning hours of May 23rd, I got out of bed where my boyfriend lay sleeping, and I go to the bathroom to find that I hadn't actually peed myself, um, that my water had just broken. So I busied myself starting to set up the pool in the corner of the living room where I had, I had put up this little birthing shrine. There were these candles and prayer flags from my blessing way, these messages of strength from all these women in my life. My, midnight, my midwife, I think, knew that I was the type of lady that would set up the pool by herself and had specifically told me not to, but everyone was asleep and I needed a project. So I, <laughs> I needed to see if I could get some contractions started. So a couple of hours later, I crawled back into bed with Nate. I told him what was going on. Somehow the noise of the tiny air compressor that I had been using for the last two hours hadn't woken anybody up. He and I lay in bed for a while cuddling, and I decided that I wanted to get up and go to the pool. So he follows me. He makes us some coffee and toast. And it was this really dreamy scene that, like, all the little hippie candles were lit. And I had lavender oil in my birthing pool. And there was this golden glow from the morning light falling into the living room windows. We sat there, and we listened to Neil Young, and we kissed, and we giggled, and he rubbed my back, and my son woke up and, and joined me in the pool, and I felt really whole and comfortable and, and full of love. I felt supported and warm and in love to welcome my little baby girl into the world. But I knew that it wasn't going to last forever, because 
While we all seemed to be getting along okay, Clay was not okay with the thought of another man being there for the birth of his daughter. I'm not going to have the first thing that my little girl sees be his fucking mustache. Fair enough. So as morning drew on, uh, about 7 a.m., I called Clay to tell him that he should come home. Nate took a shower and left for work. I called my friend Julia that would be there to support me and my midwife. I really didn't want all these people around because when I'm, I'm birthing, I'm kind of like a maimed cat. I just want to like hide in a dark hole alone and have no one look at me. But the thought of giving birth alone kind of made everybody else nervous. So I agreed to have a few people there. Once Nate left and Clay came home, the whole mood shifted and so did the weather. The sun was covered with dark clouds and wind and sleet came. I was told that I needed to go for a walk to try to pick up labor, and so I lumbered into some clothes and a heavy jacket, and after five minutes of fighting with wind and being pelted in the face with sleet, I decided, fuck this, and I headed home. I told Clay that he needed to take me to Meyer to do laps around the store, which Meyer can only be described as the last place that any human should be expected to endure, like, at all, let alone in labor. But the, the whole drive to Meyer and the time that we were there, Clay was acting this, like, this like, nervous freak, even for him. And he was totally on edge. I didn't understand what the hell he was so nervous about. I was the one who was going to be having to put a whole human out of my body, not him. So when I asked him, he said, birth just freaks me out. It makes me nervous. I scowled. We walked around Meyer, And by the time we headed home, I hadn't had a contraction in over two hours. The small little bit of labor that I had been in was gone completely, and I was not happy. Clay was still being a freak. I was over it. I finally blew up and told him, look, man, you either need to get your shit together or leave. I have to figure out how to have a baby today. I can't deal with you being a nervous wreck. I'm taking a shower. You figure your shit out. So I got into the shower, and I was mad. I was mad that my body wasn't working. I lowered my head onto my hands against the shower wall, and I just cried. I cried because this was not what I wanted. I cried because this is not the way I wanted my family to be. I cried and I cried and I cried at how unfair it all felt. And I cried for myself and my son and my daughter and I cried because I wanted to be wrapped up in the warm loving light that I'd had just a few hours before. But here I was fighting with my husband who I was trying to divorce and it all felt so so unfair and I held my stomach in the shower and I talked to my baby and I cried harder than I had since the separation had happened and soon I felt this overwhelming sense of calm come over me and I realized that this was between me and my baby and that if someone else could make me feel that way that those feelings existed within me and that no one could make me feel anything, but that I had every bit of power to make myself feel however I wanted to. And I climbed out of that shower with a little protective bubble around myself, and I went to lay down and take a nap and energetically reset myself, telling Clay through the kitchen, I'm napping, you get your shit together. 45 minutes later, I woke up with strong active labor contractions. I woke up and told Clay to boil more water for the pool, I called Julie to come over, and with every contraction, I could feel my body opening up. It was nothing like my first birth that felt like I was going to die at any second or maybe that I might just be like strapped to the front of a train. I could feel very acutely exactly what was happening. 
And I got back in the pool and I welcomed the contractions, egging them on almost like, oh yeah, that was pretty good. Is that all you got? Come on, give me another one. Stronger this time. And I would hold my breath and I would float belly down, weightless in the pool, feeling contraction wave, contractions wave over me. And I felt completely in control of everything. And the sun came out again and the clouds parted and Julie came in the house with this basket full of lilacs that had started to bloom that day. She scattered them around the room in jars. She busied herself warming the pool, and I thought, this is more like it. So when Clay told me an hour later, look, you've got to call these, the midwives. These things are coming right on top of one another, and I'm not catching a baby. I wasn't very happy. I had just gotten back into my groove. But I called my midwife, and I told her, yeah, you know, I'm in labor. It's not too bad. I bet I'm at a six. She said she was coming. So as soon as I hung up the phone, I got back in the pool, and I had three contractions right on top of one another. And in the middle of the third, I could feel my legs shake and my eyes dilated, and the whole world sort of shifted on an axis. And I thought, oh, shit, I just hit transition. And they came on hard and fast, but I was able to handle it. I kind of climbed out of the pool and went to the bathroom. But sitting on the toilet wasn't an option for me anymore as I had a person lodged in my pelvis at this point. So I just sort of stood in the shower with the shower running on on me and holding the shower curtain as contractions would hit. About 10 minutes later, my midwife walked in the house and suddenly every birth that I had seen as a doula hit me. And I became convinced that I was nowhere near the end. And I yelled at her as I made the fast waddle back to the living room. And I said, Kathy, you have to check me right now. She said, okay. She hadn't even put her purse down at this point. Okay, Janelle, just a second. Just, just let, me, let me get some heart turns. And I said, no, Kathy, now. So she complied. And she told me, no, you're doing great. You're at an eight. Suddenly, the most intense contraction hit, and I felt this incredible urge to push, which I followed at first. But then I realized if I pushed along with the contraction, a whole baby would come flying out, like one of those T-shirt launcher things at sporting <laughs> events. So I calmed down. And I got back in the pool, and I just breathed. And I breathed her down, and I, I crowned her myself. I checked her neck for cord, and in the next contraction, I birthed her whole body. No one else touched her. I did it myself. I brought her to my chest. I cut her cord myself. She cried just a little to let us know that she was okay, but then she just kind of snuggled into my chest and stared at me, even more beautiful than I could have imagined. Suddenly, all the bad feelings were gone. I had this amazing little baby... We had done it. She had done it. And after a shower to clean up, clean up, I came into my bedroom to find my altar had been moved, clean sheets put on my bed, candles lit, lilacs filling my room. I laid down to cuddle my fresh, perfect little girl, and I felt whole and proud and hopeful. And then Clay came in to talk to me, and he had that same frantic look on his face. And I knew he just saw what happened, the part where me and his daughter were total badasses and birthed ourselves. And I said, Clay, we're fine. Her birth was perfect. She is perfect. What in the world is wrong? And he looked at me and blurted, Amy is pregnant. She told me last night. And he sort of broke down, not crying so much, just sort of shrunk into himself. And he said that he was sorry and he was scared. And he had no idea what to do. And we talked and I tried to approach him with compassion, mixed with this really strong feeling of how unfair this was, that I couldn't have this, just this one perfect moment with my two-hour-old baby. 
But I decided that the protective bubble I built would stay. My daughter looked at me with these wise little woman eyes as if to say, it's okay, mama, you can, you can handle this. This will pass. Two days later, Amy sat on my couch as I held my two-day-old baby, and she cried and sought my counsel. And even though I didn't see it this way, not by a long shot, I think she sort of saw us as like these strange sister wives or something. I tried to approach her not as my husband's mistress, but as a mother, as a woman, as a person who could understand how horribly hard this would be. So the four of us, me, Nate, Clay, Amy, we all spent the next month making sure that everyone was taken care of and that everyone got what they needed until Clay and Amy's relationship blew up into oblivion. That's not to say that there wasn't a good amount of resentment. There was, but we were all okay. It's been years since that happened, and life has settled. I financially rebound. I've rebuilt my life, and as calm and collected as I was in the days and weeks that followed my daughter's birth, parenting has proven to be harder in ways that I could never have imagined. My depression, my temper, my lack of patience and organization, the terror that I am doing this all wrong and forever fucking my kids up. The thought that I should be making some craft off Pinterest or going to PTA meetings, the pressure of being the only one to conduct the constant inventory, the constant talking of children and the desire to have quiet. And no matter how raw my nerves have become from what's happened, no matter how much I grieve for the life that I think that they should have had or what I should have given them, at the end of the day, parenting breaks my heart not because because no matter how much I think I should be making these adorable fucking crafts or meal plans or sticker charts or being endlessly patient. No matter how much my inadequacies as a person glare back at me so blindingly at times that I'm just failing. I know it. I'm failing at parenting. And at the end of the day, my kids have no idea what I think I should or shouldn't be. At the end of the day, my son still hugs me and says, I love you, mommy. You're my beautiful, sweet mommy. In our next story, Donna Stein Harris is convinced that the ghosts of her parents have been visiting her and her sister. It was always mother and daddy. Mother's world was absolute, always tidy, you always shared, you never broke a promise, you always followed through, you never disappointed anybody, you were always well presented, and you never, ever, ever served ketchup out of a bottle. (laughs) A woman should always have her own putschki, her own money, she would say, you never know. The dollar is round, and dead is dead. She was a fabulous cook. There was always more than enough for my friends, and my friends were always welcome. She fed everybody. She would say, if you started with 12 rolls, and you had six left over, you didn't have enough to start with. (laughs) She could look in the window of Saks Fifth Avenue, see a dress she liked, and come home and make it on her singer sewing machine without a pattern. Her tailoring talents were legendary. 
My sister and I were always up to the minute in the latest fashion. We had the most gorgeous poodle skirts in the neighborhood. <laughs> Mother only stood five feet tall, and she was a redhead. And from the time I can remember, she told my sister and I that the only thing in the whole world that would make her happy was to have a red-headed grandchild. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but she never raised her voice, ever. I can only remember once in my entire life when she even came close. I must have been about five or six. And she gritted her teeth and ever so slightly raised the pitch, her pitch and said, I am at the brink of my endurance. <laughs> I don't know what we did, but I never forgot that moment. She ruled with an iron eyebrow. <laughs> and you never disappointed, Mother. <laughs> Daddy, on the other hand, was movie star handsome, quiet, introspective, and had a strong sense of social justice. He was a man of deep conviction. The only time I ever saw him cry was when Kennedy was assassinated. He was inconsolable. The world, our world, as we know it, will never be the same, he said. I think he was right. He was never particularly successful in business, which was a great disappointment to my mother, who was always in competition with her wealthy siblings but he loved my sister and I unconditionally. And I know both my parents would have been proud of the way my life turned out. Oh, mother may have had one caveat. Uh, Donna, she would say, you have such a pretty face, why can't you take off a few pounds? <laughs> Remember that. But they never got to see me all grown up or what I did with my life. Mother died almost 50 years ago and daddy a few years after that. <clears throat> Mother only knew my oldest child as a baby. Daddy knew my daughter and my son. They called him Grandpere. <laughs> he had a special connection with my toddler son. There were more grandchildren after that that they never met. So there I was in my 20s as a young, with a young family navigating parenthood without mother's advice and daddy's bottomless kindness. But they were always present in my head in everything I did or didn't do. My sister and I became very close after they died. We became parents to each other. We shared everything. We were joined at the hip. And after they were gone, my sister and I felt that we were under this increasing pressure to produce this red-headed grandchild. <laughs> you never disappointed mother, even if she was dead. <laughs> Finally, grandchild number six. My sister's daughter was born with flaming red hair. Thank God we could stop producing. <laughs> Soon after my niece was born, strange things started happening in my sister's house. Lights would mysteriously go on and off. Doors would be locked from the inside when nobody was home. Uh, as a new mother her, with two little toddlers, my sister's life was chaos. Her two-year-old was a monster child. 
grew up to be a monster man, but that's another story. Uh, and everyone just assumed he was responsible for the strange happenings. But other things happened that couldn't be explained by the behavior of a two-year-old. My sister would misplace things, and then they would magically reappear, neatly folded on the top of her dresser. And then when her mother-in-law gave her a break and said they, she and her husband could go out one night, when she came back, she found this basket on her dresser of mending that she had left, neatly folded, neatly stitched, and clean, just sitting there. So she thanked her mother-in-law and said, boy, that was nice of you. And her mother, yeah, like that really happened, sure. Yeah. <laughs> she asked me, and I had the same answer, mm-hmm, never. But I said, hmm, what do you know? And she, and she called me, and she said, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd swear those were mother's stitches. Maybe, just maybe, Mother was so delighted that she finally had her redheaded grandchild that she needed to help out somehow, some way, even from beyond the grave. Things went on like this for quite a while. And by, the time we, and by that time, we were convinced that Mother had taken up residence in my sister's house. And each time something had happened, my sister would call me, and we would laugh, and we said, well, could be. Why not? Then one day, that fateful day, my sister went grocery shopping. She brought my niece in first, and she was in a car seat, and she brought her in the house and put her on the floor where she would be safe, and then went out to get her groceries out of the car. As soon as she came back, she hears the window shade in the dining room spinning wildly, and she runs in to see what happened, only to find her two-year-old son trying to lift the baby out of the car seat by her neck. <clears throat> Thank you, Mother. Nothing ever happened in my sister's house after that. But a few months later, my son lost his first tooth. We had one of those little treasure boxes that you, get, you used to get at the dentist's office. You could only fit a dime in it. That's all it would fit. And he put it under the, his pillow for the tooth fairy, and sure enough, the next morning, he got up, and there was that little dime, and maybe we gave him an extra dollar. But he was so happy. But unfortunately, in the course of the day, um, he lost that dime. And he, he's six. You know, he was, he was distraught. And I said to him, you know what? I bet the tooth fairy knows you didn't mean to lose that dime. You put that little box under your pillow again, and I'll bet the tooth fairy comes back. The next morning, I wake up, and oh, in a panic, I had forgotten to put the dime in the treasure box. I wake up my husband, and I said, did you remember? No, no, oh my God, we run, we run to his room hoping to get it in there before he wakes up, but we were too late. But there he was wide awake, grinning ear to ear, holding the dime. Okay. <laughs> what do I do? Run to the phone to call my sister. <laughs> I said, Mother may have been visiting you all those months, but Daddy paid us a visit last night. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm sitting on the phone. We didn't have cell phones then. I'm sitting, it's a wall phone. I'm sitting on the phone. There's a door here. My older daughter comes in to see what I'm laughing about. And I'm, and I, and you have to understand the kitchen was the refrigerator. There's a stove over there in the corner. And we're, and I'm laughing with my sister. And finally I said, you know what, daddy, don't mess around. If you're here, give me a sign. What else do you say to your father's ghost? You know, yeah. And in an instant, spontaneously, the back burner of my gas stove ignited. I told my sister what we did, what had just happened, and in perfect unison we said, we love you too, Daddy. <laughs> he only paid us that one visit. Nothing ever happened after that. Now, almost a half a century later, the need to stay connected to my parents is, strong, is as strong as it was years ago. They will always be nearby, one way or another. They were always in my head, in my heart, and I'm confident they will always be around. Who knows? I bet they're in the audience tonight. Thank you. In this next story, Betsy Emden tells of how her ex had cast their young daughter in a music video about abduction, and this changed the way everyone felt about him. Gigi Allen was a notorious punk rocker from the 1980s whose credo was to bring danger back to rock and roll. He was famous for his vow to commit suicide on stage on Halloween. That was a promise that was never fulfilled because he was always in jail on Halloween. <laughs> now, during his performances, he would vomit on stage, mutilate himself until he was covered in blood, shit on stage, and then spread his feces over his body. He'd spit on his audience. He'd hurl objects at them. And he, when he made appearances on Geraldo and Jerry Springer's talk shows, he seemed delighted, just filled with glee, to tell the shocked audiences how he would pull young women from the audience to give him blowjobs. And this disgusting person wanted to make a music video featuring my four-year-old daughter. That's how he came to spend a sunny summer afternoon at my parents' suburban Grand Rapids home. Now, how did I, an introverted, serious-minded librarian and my sweet-natured little girl, find ourselves in the midst of this crazy video shoot? Well, it was her father's idea. I'd met her dad, M, during a period in my life when I tried to break out of my bashful persona and flitted around the edges of the punk rock scene. For me, it was more about the scene, uh, a yearning for the avant-garde rather than the music or a punk attitude. Let me add here, I have terrible taste in men. <laughs> Notice I said 
have not had. <laughs> uh, back then, M was a drummer in a band when we met. I was seduced by his edgy glamour and less than six months later, married him. Six months after that, the marriage was annulled. And then I had his baby. At the time this story took place in 1988, M was a, a heavy-duty stoner running a punk rock nightclub of sorts uh, in Muskegon called the Ice Pick. And he sort of considered himself a, a punk rock impresario. He booked his idol Gigi into his club and they became friends. I believe the idea for the video came from M. When M told me that none, of the, none other than Gigi Allen wanted to feature our little girl in a music video, I said, who's Gigi Allen? M was stunned that I'd never heard of him. It was akin to saying I'd never heard of the Beatles. But M was ecstatic about the prospect of this video starring our daughter. But what I've never mentioned to anyone uh, before tonight was the true subject matter of the video. Gigi, who wanted to bring danger back to rock and roll, planned to make a music video about a kidnapper and child molester. I don't know where such a video would be shown. This was long before the internet and was not the stuff of MTV. M, I'm certain, encouraged Gigi to feature his daughter. He didn't really care about pretenses. Uh, uh, he yearned for her to be a celebrity, to bask in her stardom. And I suspect he hoped to let her support him so he could get out of his $25 a week child support payment, a payment that was underwritten by his own dad. And I meekly and weakly agreed to the video. Am assured me it was all above board. Nothing would happen to our little girl. The video would simply show Gigi walking away down the sidewalk with her. But still, to this day, I ask myself why I allowed this. I feared M for one thing. He could be irrational and volatile. Even his own dad called him an SOB. His weekly visits took place at my parents' house to be on neutral ground where he'd be less likely to harass or threaten me. The odious video was make-believe, but M's threats, if he didn't get his way, were real. So on that selected Sunday, the entourage arrived. M, the videographer, a couple of sound men, a few hangers-on, all clad in black clothing that was tight in some places, loose in others, slashed here and there. They wore buzz cuts, mohawks, and other outre hairstyles, and were pierced, tattooed, and adorned with jangling metal. Gigi emerged in bondage pants, Doc Martens, and sporting a shorn head. But there was no blood or shit on his person. <laughs> we welcomed them in, and just to be safe, made a point of showing Gigi where the bathroom was located. <laughs> My mother, who was a leader in her church, had probably very likely led the congregation in the Lord's Prayer that very morning. And now here she was in her perfect hostess role, and she offered up the crew her standard fare of diet 7-Up, which was likely flat, 
I recall, or instant coffee. I think she even thought out some date nut bread for the, for the occasion. For She believed uh, she, a hostess should always serve her guests, even if they're a snarly crew of punk rockers. In the kitchen, Mom whispered to me that she hoped Marge was observing all this activity at the house. Marge lived across the street and was a good friend to Mom. My mom was a regular churchgoer, but Marge and her family were so religious that they didn't even have the newspaper delivered on Sunday. Instead, they went out and bought an early edition on Saturday night to prevent anyone to prevent contributing to the sin of working on the Sabbath. I was surprised by Mom's statement. Uh, I figured she would have been humiliated by having these nefarious characters milling about the house and yard, but instead she seemed to relish the disruption to the placid sameness, the potential for scandal. My dad seemed bemused by the situation. He held forth from his Naugahyde recliner, more interested in the Tigers game on TV than the production surrounding him. Music video, Glenn Miller and Benny Miller didn't, and Benny Goodman didn't make music videos. What was this Michigas? I came from an interfaith family. <laughs> My daughter was excited. She twirled about in her pastel sundress. Lots of people were around, and she was the center of attention. She was going to be in some sort of movie after all. The goings-on reminded me of the one or two actual movie productions I've witnessed. Lots of sitting around and tinkering with equipment. The living room floor was a jumble of cords. M paced back and forth, slurping his coffee. I'm sure he yearned to fire up a joint, but didn't dare in front of my parents. Gigi sat silently, monarch-like, upon the floral couch, watching the crew make preparations. I stole glances at him, didn't want to stare, but worried about a profane outburst, spewing puke over the walnut coffee table, or trying to shoot up. But mostly, I felt like I was watching a movie myself. I, a therapist once noted that I let things happen to me. I was like the occupant of an oarless rowboat bobbing in the sea. And on that afternoon, I felt like an observer as life flowed on around me. But finally, Gigi deemed it time for the production to begin. We all filed out to the yard, except my dad, who stood by the screen doors so he could keep an eye on the ball game. Action. Gigi grasped my daughter's hand and led her down the oak-shaded sidewalk past the neighborhood's brick ranches and colonials to the end of the block. His long legs met her preschool pace. If he spoke to her, I couldn't hear what he said. Take one, take two, and then once again. A good little actress, my daughter played her part well. M bounced in place. It was like watching, he was watching the coronation. His hero and daughter, king and princess of the underground video world. I cringed inside. I knew my daughter was safe, 
She wasn't really going to be molested, but I felt guilty for being complicit. What kind of mother was I? I was like one of those crazy women that are show up on the Jerry Springer show where everybody gets mad at them. Despite my fears of retaliation from M, I should have said no, no. But then Gigi decided to shut it down, just like that. No explanation, just no more video. M was petulant that the kibosh had put up been put on this project that could have led to glory. An air of disappointment hung over the crew, the, the crew group as they quit, packed up their equipment and stowed it away. I was relieved that Gigi stopped it. He did what I didn't have the guts to do, and I remain thankful to him. He saved me and my daughter from the YouTubes of the future. There's nothing to embarrass her, no public record of my shameful ascent to portray such an abhorrent subject, nothing to Google. Perhaps there was a bit of morality to Gigi, this malevolent character who ducked into M's car without any farewell. My mom, daughter, and I watched the Gigi entourage drive off. I don't know if any of the neighbors were peeking from behind the curtains. In this next story, Elon Cameron delineates the many reasons she opted to not have kids. I am the only child of two only children, sort of. Uh, because I talk about my parents all the time here, most of you know a bit about them, but my mother, a retired jeweler, metalsmith, and school bus driver, taught me to be ferociously loyal, bold as all get out, and not to take any shit from anybody. Thank you, Mom. (laughs) My father, who has end-stage esophageal cancer, is retired from the substance abuse counseling and education field, which he was in for 30 years, and now he uh, partakes of copious amounts of marijuana. Um, He taught me to try to be charming. (laughs) You could Yoda that one a little bit. And to be passionate about the spiritual journey of life. So I thank him, too. I'm really grateful to my parents. I'm, I'm grateful for them. Even though I often say with parents like mine, you don't need children. Um, and that's really true. <laughs> they are still two of the most fascinating people you'll ever meet in the world. But that said, I'm it. My gene pool ends right here. I was never certain about having kids until I was certain that I didn't want to. Now let me be clear, I have a lot of friends who are parents, and I like and love their children in a way that makes it awesome to be an auntie. Um, You know, I know a lot of people with kids. I know a lot of people who are parents. I'm not like parent phobic or anything. But really, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Just know that when I say 
that people with children are totally obsessed with themselves and their spawn are profoundly self-congratulatory and seem to believe that they are elite humans for merely procreating. Clearly, I'm not talking about you. Not you at all. You're fucking awesome. You're a punk rock amazing mom. Um, but <laughs> could people perhaps just stop with the prostrate adulation that they dole out to these tiny tyrants who have the egos of dictators. <laughs> People are raising a nation of narcissists, and I am concerned. <laughs> having a friend with a baby is like having a friend who is in a dysfunctional relationship. sort of like in college when your best friend started dating that weird older dude who totally alienated her from everything she used to be. <laughs> it's totally like that. They are little demanding assholes. For example, I have two best friends. One's a dude, one's a lady. I have not talked on the phone to the one who's a dude, for more than five minutes in four years because he has two children and those fuckers need everything. <laughs> they are loud and messy and they smell and they're cute little cesspools of germ invasions. <laughs> okay, I know. So what if you get someone who will take care of you when you're older? What if you don't live that long? <laughs> and if grandchildren is the big reward, cool, have fun with that. I mean, the thing that I really hate are those really self-absorbed, we've got those parents, who are like so much more annoying than the exhausted, downtrodden ones, because at least those people are kind of keeping it real. <laughs> the folks who always look gorgeous and rested and happy with perfect-looking children, oh my God, those kids are going to need so much therapy. <laughs> In any event, the decision to remain without children is one I stand by. The people with kids, sure, you have a bright future, but you know what? I have a bright today. <laughs> My now is pretty awesome. I work hard, I play hard, I spend my tr free time doing whatever the fuck I want. Maybe I'm bettering myself, studying medicine I practice, practicing martial arts, meditating, hanging out with Jen, caring for my aging parents. You know, I do volunteer. I'm working toward a more just future for your children to enjoy. But listen, I can turn my cell phone off whenever I want. I asked around about what people can't do since having children and a brief little tally provided. None of them have time to have a quiet time alone, read a book, talk on the phone, have a peaceful car ride anywhere. 
go grocery shopping, do any sort of housework because resistance is futile, go to the bathroom alone, shop for themselves, think straight, go to even the most essential appointments on time, work, or anything related to the computer like typing, which are just a few of the random luxuries that I childlessly experience on the daily. Sure, life marches on, and the people we love die, and friends have hard times, and we keep trudging along toward our own eventual demise, but having children does not make you immortal. It just makes you greedy. Like, my tribe deserves more resources than yours because there's more of us. This level of entitlement is almost baffling to me. It's like, we're going to flagrantly overpopulate until we blow this shit up. (laughs) And the delusion is so powerful that basic manners and decorum have completely left the question. I'd thought that no polite, non-Tourette's-affected human (laughs) would ask beyond the first two questions, do you have kids, do you want kids? Both innocent and fair game in adult conversation. But no, it wasn't until five years ago, which was interestingly when I moved back to northern Michigan, that anyone ever asked me, have you tried? Have you tried? Have you tried? Okay, do straight people get asked this question in casual conversation with strangers? Just quick show of hands. Anyone? So one, two, three, four, great. I'm not alone, thank you. But it's like, have you tried the amazing caramel apples at Kilwins? Have you tried taking an Epsom salt bath after a long day? Have you tried Pilates? No. Have you tried to inject a stranger's sperm into your body, carrying a growing fetus in your uterus for 40 weeks, and squeeze said creature that will be the size of a large chicken or a small turkey out of your vagina? Wow. you think about that one for a minute. (laughs) Considering that I don't currently have children, maybe consider the question before you ask it. (laughs) Maybe it's just my angry lesbian tendencies that make me want to raise a fist into the air and shout, I'm busy crushing the patriarchy over here! I understand people wanting folks to be on their team. That's how we relate to other humans. I think kind of it's great, mostly. Just get out of my fucking reproductive organs with your well-meaning curiosity. It's impolite and jarring to say the least. It's like the question that lays beyond the fascination is, why? 
Why don't you have kids? Why don't you want kids? Well, in addition to the aforementioned content, I don't know. I feel kind of strongly about zero population growth, and I know for a fact that you don't have full con control over what you get. And plus, I have a lot of people I know. I mean, I have had people of parents of every age child look into my eyes and say, I know this isn't cool, slash it's unpopular, slash I'm not supposed to say this, I should never admit this, it's really not okay for me to say this, but I wish we'd never had children. <laughs> These people are in need of a kind of forgiveness I can't quite fathom. I've known mothers of teenage and tweenage girls say, you have no idea how mean they are? <laughs> they are mean girls. And they're bitches. <laughs> I had an elderly man with an enormous family whose wife had died say, I know they're my responsibility and I will do my best to take care of them but not one of my children has a shred of talent or ambition, and I can barely stand to go on living because of that. <laughs> True story. <laughs> now, we can brush these things off, or maybe some of us can, but the bottom line is parenting isn't for me. My friends and I enjoy the freedoms of childlessness, we go out to eat at a restaurant. No sitter. No one pees on the floor. No enforced bedtimes. No dealing with small humans screaming at us or large humans getting in trouble at school or with the law. When Jen and I meet people who we think we might want to be friends with and we find out that they don't have kids, we do like a little secret high five. As I care for my aging parents, I sometimes think of my friends with kids. They don't get to dole out this sort of care to anyone, not even themselves, not even each other. Their lives are consumed by making a family, and that's what they do, and it is honorable. Each child is a full-time job, and for some folks, this is their calling. It's their jam. That's great. Not me. Maybe I'm just immature or selfish, but my life is mine, and my imprint on this world sits squarely on my shoulders, and I wouldn't want to subject an innocent, tiny human to the terrifying uncertainties of the world we currently live in. Maybe that's just the limit of my optimism. Maybe you all have a lot more hope. Maybe, just maybe though, life is equally good without kids. Maybe some of us need to be here waiting in the wings for those times when you really, really need a break. When your children go completely berserk because generally we get plenty of sleep and you look like you need a drink. Thank you.
The next story by Matt Soderquist examines how providing social services to a girl whose mother had died caused him to reach a breaking point in dealing with the death of his own father. My cell phone had showed a missed call from Jules at about 5.30 in the morning. I'd only been asleep for about four hours. I had been up late the night before contemplating life, unsure if I would survive. But I knew something must have gone wrong because she was the on-call worker and I was her backup. Still green, she called to ask for some help. She said, the police called me at 4 a.m., They want me to come pick up an eight-year-old and tell her that her mother's dead. They can't find the dad. An hour later, we were on the scene. Jules and I pulled over to the side of the road at the crash site. The tow truck had already hauled the mangled vehicle away, but the cops were still processing the scene. A couple took photos, chalk lines in the road, numbers. Another waved us over. He said... The mom and the daughter had come up from downstate. They came up late in the evening to visit the mom's boyfriend. And at about 11 o'clock at night, the mom left Jennifer, the eight-year-old, with the boyfriend's two older kids. And they headed to the bar. At about 2.30, they were on their way home. And a couple hundred yards short of the driveway, they flipped the vehicle. The mom was flung from the truck, crushed her, and dragged her down the road a little bit further. If the kids would have woken up and looked out the window, they would have seen the whole scene. But they didn't, and they stayed asleep in their beds. Jules asked me if we were going to have to tell her that her mom had died. I didn't know. We walked into the house, and the kids were still in their pajamas, They knew their parents hadn't come home, but they didn't know why. The police had told them that there was an accident and that they were going to try to get a hold of their family. Now, Jennifer, a second grader, was smiling and beaming. Being an only child, she had had a great night of movies and popcorn with two other kids and had had no idea that her life had changed forever. We told her that we were going to try to get in touch with her dad, and see if he could come pick her up. She got dressed, gathered her bag, and came with us out to the car. I put her in the back seat and closed the door, and Jules said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, it's 7.30 in the morning. Let's get some breakfast. I asked Jennifer, do you like Mickey Mouse pancakes? And she said, yeah. Like it was some friend that she knew that we were going to go visit. So we went to pull out of the driveway. And I said, oh, Jennifer, look. Off in the woods, I think there's some deer out there. And as we rolled over the blood in the road where her mom had been killed, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Jules and Jennifer... And I sat down at the table, down on the farm, my favorite restaurant, where strangers are treated like friends and friends like family. We played 
tic-tac-toe. We colored the placemat and waited for our Mickey Mouse pancakes to arrive. We laughed and we told jokes. And as far as anyone else in the restaurant was concerned, we were just a happy family there for our morning breakfast. I thought about a lot how her life had just been changed, about the inevitable heartache she would soon experience. And the thought of my own father's tragic death stuck in my throat like a golf ball, making it hard to breathe. I'd been sitting at my desk on a Friday afternoon and had looked down at my cell phone to see that I had a call from my stepmom, Mary. I was extremely confused, mainly because my stepmother never called me, but more so because my father had recently been talking about placing her in a nursing home because of her advancing dementia, her increasing aggression. Maybe she was calling by accident. I picked up the phone. Matthew? Yeah? Your dad shot himself. She said very blankly. What do you mean he shot himself? I was extremely confused. Was he cleaning his gun and it went off? Is he all right? What hospital is he at? What police agency is involved? Can I talk to him? I jumped immediately into my investigative mode. While most people would have dropped to the floor in a heap of despair, I wanted to talk to the detective. The detective just left, she said. They won't let us back in the house yet. He's dead. Now, a psychologist friend of mine had told me that I've always had a keen eye for the blatantly obvious. And there was something just not right about the situation. My stepmom said that she had went into the bedroom at 11 o'clock in the morning to tell my dad that she was walking down to the post office, and she woke him up and told him. And he said okay and turned and went back to bed. Fifteen minutes later, she said she came back to the house, went into the bedroom, and found him shot dead. Now, this didn't make any sense to me at all. For one, my dad was never clinically depressed. He never suffered from any type of anxiety or really had much heartache or troubles at all. He was very much looking forward to retirement, looking forward to spending time with his grandkids. And he was the kind of person that it wasn't a life is or the glasses half empty. He wasn't the glasses half full. My dad was the kind of guy who walked around with a pitcher filling up everyone's glasses. I followed the investigation closely, DNA, ballistics, fingerprints. I analyzed the crime sketches and talked to the detective every few months. Real-life police investigation is not anything like NCIS. The only major suspect he had was my stepmother. Now she was in Georgia, Wisconsin, and South Carolina. Years passed. But later that afternoon when Jennifer's family had came and picked her up, I went for a walk in the woods to reflect about her mother's death, how it had brought my own father's death front and center for me. I thought about Jennifer and how her life would be so different. I thought about my own dad and how devastating a loss that was to me. So alone on a trail in the city park, I broke down. And I fell to my knees and I cried. I was overwhelmed with emotion for the first time since my dad's death years before. 
It was as if Jennifer's tragedy had held a space for me to grieve my own loss. It was healing. And I hope the same for Jennifer. Kind of ironically, this past week, my stepmother died from late-stage Alzheimer's. The last time I had met with the detective, he had given, he had said he had given her mental state, even if she walked into the detective's bureau and admitted that she had shot or killed my dad, there was little that they could or, more notably, would do. I kind of feel indifferent about it about her death. I was hoping for some closure or finality, but there's just a void, nothingness. Her funeral service was today. I didn't go. Would you? story of this show, Jennifer Strauss explains how her mother helped her to overcome her struggles with writing by challenging her to tell stories. The last quarter of my mother's life, um, she was pretty bitter and angry and sad. A mom that I remember being very cheerful and happy and positive most of my life. After my father died, her view had changed. The last six months of her life, I had talked to her because there had been a rift between the two of us. The day that I did go back was right before Mother's Day, and I was driving to her house trying to figure out how we were not going to argue that day. It was the day that I found her, and she had died in her sleep the night before. I had to break open her apartment window to get in to find her there, and with all the conflict we had had in that last part of her life, I looked down and said, you died in your sleep. Good job, Flo. What a great departure. In the weeks and days that followed, my sisters and I had to clear out her apartment and go through all the goods that were left and get rid of them. In the back closet of her apartment, we opened up the cupboard the cupboard of a woman who really didn't have sentimentality, didn't like to keep things that were too old. And there were three boxes on the shelf in the back closet, Leslie, Melissa, Jennifer. She had kept some of the things from our childhood. I had no idea that she had kept. I opened up my box, and there were many things of memory from my childhood in that box, but I pulled out two things that caused memories to flood back to me that I hadn't had in such a long time. And I remembered the mother that I had had as a young person. There was a box, a hand-painted box that was sort of a jewelry box and a journal. And I realized that I had good mom's stories that I could tell and remember. In third grade, I had Mrs. Benson. I had Mrs. Benson. I had Mrs. Sit down, put your hands in your lap, Mrs. Benson. And I was this kind of kid. <laughs> I loved school. I was paying attention, but I could not sit still. If I hadn't been raised when I was, I would have been medicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mrs. Benson would look at me wiggling in my chair with all my enthusiasm and energy and excitement and say, young lady, if you can't sit still, you go sit out in the hall. 
And I would say, oh, no, Mrs. Benson, don't put me out there. I might miss something. She would kick me out into the hallway thinking that I would somehow settle down, and then she'd call me back in. But in the hall, I would wait for her to come and get me like this. She'd come and get me and put me back in my seat. Mrs. Benson that, got, that year got used to this wiggly kid. She knew I was listening, and she knew I loved school, but I was having a hard time with writing in third grade. And when you handed anything in to Mrs. Benson, it came back, do you guys remember these red grease pencils that they graded your papers with? With X's and marks and lines that were crossed out that made me feel terrible. And on the back, it always said, you can do better. I didn't go to anybody for help. I thought I would solve this problem on my own. And so I decided that if my papers were going to come back looking like that, that I just wouldn't turn them in anymore. My grades went down in in third grade. My self-esteem went further down. I was really happy when third grade was over. It was a hot July day in the city of Detroit where I grew up. There wasn't a whole lot going on in the neighborhood. And I made the mistake of watching it, walking into the kitchen where my mother was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my sisters and I. And I looked up at her and said, Mom, I'm really bored. No. <laughs> no. If we told my mother that we were bored, she would hand us one of two things. She would hand us the toilet brush and make us clean the bathrooms. Or she would hand us the the, uh, vacuum cleaner and make us vacuum. That day when the words left my mouth, she didn't hand me the toilet brush or the vacuum cleaner. She went into the closet next to her bedroom and got out a box that I had never seen before, even though it looked like a jewelry box. I had never seen it on her dresser. And she handed the box to me, and she said, here. I said, thanks. What do you want me to do with it? She said, honey, I want you to go outside every day this summer, and I want you to have an adventure. And I said, okay, what's an adventure? She said, honey, I want you to go outside every day this summer, and I want you to do something that you have never done before. And I don't want you to get hurt. No, mom, won't get hurt. And I don't want you to get in trouble. Oh, no, won't get in trouble. Had enough of that. I said, then what? She said, after you'd tried something new, I want you to bring me home an object, put it in the box, and every night I'll try and guess what you were doing. A light bulb went on in my dull brain. (laughs) I realized that that summer I was going to play stump my mom, and she was never going to guess what I was doing, and I wasn't going to get hurt, and I was going to try really hard not to get in trouble. The first day of the adventure... This is what ended up in the, in the box. Can you see it? White pine cone. I knew I needed an adventure, and where do you go? You find your best friend. I got on my flower-powered purple stingray bike. I rode through blocks and through the neighborhood to my friend Marty's house, ditched my bike in the front lawn, ran into the backyard because we always met there, Julie, Kathy, Russ, Marty, and I. In Marty's backyard, there was a tree fort that we didn't have to build. When his family moved into that house, his grandfather planted trees in a circle in the backyard, not knowing how big those trees were going to be one day. They grew so large that all those trees were touching each other in a circle, except for two of them. And there was a space between those two trees that was just big enough for kids to slide through. 
but not big enough for grown-ups to follow us. I squeezed through the two trees into the tree fort. My friends were all standing in the middle looking up at the tops of the trees, and I said, what are we doing? Marty said, we're going to move the tree fort to the tops of the trees. I said, cool, how are we going to move the trees? He said, no, come here. We went back outside. His father had given us the leftover lumber from a garage that he had built. All the tools were there, the hammers and nails, the saws and screws. And that day, we took one of those longer boards and cut it up into pieces, went inside of our tree fort, and started to nail those pieces up the inside of the trees until we had a ladder. Two kids went up, and we handed boards and nails and tools up to them until we were all on top. We had hammered boards around the circle of those trees, and by the end of the day, flat boards that made a platform that we were all sitting on, holding on tight, swaying in the breeze. We thought that it was wonderful that our new tree fort in the tops of the trees could move from side to side. I knew it was time to go home for dinner, and I said, oh, yeah, you guys, I need something for the box, because I told them about my mother's challenge of an adventure. Marty handed me a hammer, and I said, it's not going to fit. Julie handed me a nail, and I said, she'll guess. Russ reached up in the tops of those trees and handed me that pine cone. He said, she'll never know what we did today. I took the pine cone home and put it in the box, and that night before bed, my mom said, hey, what was the adventure today? Anything in the box? I said, oh, yeah, Mom. And I took that pine cone out, and I held it in her face, and I said, guess. She said, did you go for a walk in the woods? Oh, no. Guess again. Did you climb a tree? Kind (laughs) of. Guess again. My mother never guessed. She said, oh, I don't know, honey. Why don't you tell me the story? I had just lived that experience that day, and I said, you know, I rode my bike over Marty's, and Julie and Kathy and Russ were there, and we had this wood, and we had the tools, and then, and then, and that, and then, and then, and then. I finished that story 20 minutes later. My mother listened. And then she handed me my first journal. This is it. And she said, oh, honey, that was such a good story. Why don't you write it down? I wasn't thinking about Mrs. Benson. I wasn't thinking about the red marks on the pages that had been handed back to me that year. I opened up that journal and wrote the story that I had just lived that day. And I wrote until I was done, and I shut the journal. That summer going into fourth grade, 28 objects ended up in this box from 28 adventures that I had lived, and 28 stories ended up in this journal. When I walked into fourth grade, knowing that I had Mrs. Stebbins, I felt a little bit better about what fourth grade was going to look like. And I walked in on the first day, and I said, Mrs. Stebbins, I'm a writer. (laughs) She said, That's really nice, honey. I'm glad to hear it. I said, no, you don't understand. In third grade, I wasn't a writer, but over the summer, my mom turned me into a writer. Look. I showed her everything in the box. I showed her my journal. And that dear, sweet woman took that journal home on that first day of school. She read every story that I had written that summer. And on the last blank page, it said, you are a good writer. I can't wait to hear more. And it was not in a red pen, but instead a purple pen. Finding the objects in my mother's closet that day brought back to me a gentler mom from my childhood, a mom who was a genius, a mom 
who took away my self-esteem problems and turned me into a writer. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website,